out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Doctor and the Medics, because I recently spoke to Clive... Jackson to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. So this is the interview. They are, by the way, um, still going. They've got an album hopefully in the pipelines and will be recorded this year with live dates. But you'll find out all that in this very, very long interview. So, yes, prepare for a lot of chat. Anyway, look, after um, the usual, you know, chat that you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that very exciting subject that was... The early formative years. It's a classic. Now, Clive, tell us more. Tell us everything. Make notes, by the way. It's very long. I'm from Liverpool. So uh, at, four, at, yeah, at four years of age, and I can vaguely remember it, I was used to stand on the table um, at family parties and sing Beatles songs. Um, and I, th- I think uh, basically just consisting of me singing She Loves You, yeah, 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 over and over and over and over again. But I seem to remember that. So um, so I think coming from Liverpool, there was always that more so when I was in Liverpool. My, my parents weren't into music. So um, we moved to London when I was about six. And then that was it, really. There was a big, long void um, until, I suppose, glam rock. Uh, yeah, definitely glam rock. And you know, I could just sit here and list the name of glam rock bands, but we all know who they are, and and all the all the usual um, people come to mind. But that was definitely it. And then, as punk happened, that was for me. That's where I took it a bit further because glam for me was top of the pops. The um, and then um, the top of the pops albums. You remember the ones with the yep, absolutely. Um, and I've I've still got them somewhere, and I'm, I must fish them out. But. Um, and then, but then it was punk, really, where it took, got serious. And one, one moment in time, if you want to say the moment, um, it was one of my first punk gigs. We went to see the X-Ray Specs at uh, Marquee. Mm. And I was 16, a little punk rocker. Um, and I turned up and um, it was probably one of the most liberating moments of my life. I saw Polystyrene up there, totally unapologetic uh totally herself unique not you know not what you'd expect from a punk at the time i suppose if you said what was a punk sort of female artist at the time you'd think of susie with black in it but you know polly created her own look the x-ray specs with her own sound and, and literally watching her a light bulb went on in my head where i realized that you didn't have to be a martian to right. be in a you didn't have to be from another planet you could uh, you could just create, recreate yourself. You could create something special, express yourself. So she and I'm eternally grateful. And to be honest, up until about, I think it was two, three years ago, we did Polyfest in um, in London and at, at the Dublin Castle for four or five years um, in her memory and to raise money for her chance of uh, cancer charity um and so and we and we would always end the evening off there and that was my kind of saying thank you to her and her family because um without her i don't think i'm not sure i would be this today right (laughs) yes so so interestingly enough you missed all that kind of world that was eric's and death death school and all those kind of bill drumming and 
that kind of Liverpool scene with Jane Casey. So that didn't sort of come into your, con you know, that wasn't part of Not your thing. Not on radar at all, you know, and I mean, uh, you had to, I didn't really read the music papers at that point. Um, you know, if you think about it, people might think, oh, well, you should have been into that. You've got to remember, and I sometimes have to remind myself pre-internet, you know, if you found a band, I mean, leading up to punk, my, um, my, my main interest to find, and it was bloody difficult in those days, was uh, American West Coast psychedelia, uh, you know, uh, garage rock, you know, the 13th floor elevators, the seas, the electric prunes, because I heard there was um, cruising on uh, Capital Radio with Dave Cash, and he used to play 50s rock and roll music, and I used to listen to it because, it was, you know, that's the only alternative. And then one day he played the Nuggets album, the whole of the Nuggets album, and I what is this? You'd never heard of it. And why would you, you know? Yes. So then, you know, it was little snippets in the music papers is when I started reading the papers to try and find stuff about this era. And, and it was, it was, a, you know, it was, a, it was, yeah, it, you had to be dedicated because then you get a bus journey to Bromley to a record store that you'd phoned that had one copy of Easter everywhere and you'd get <laughs> home, try not to get a kick in on the way home because you were carrying the wrong records. Um, and yeah, so that was so when I discovered punk, I had this parallel thing with 60s garage punk and punk. And to me, I thought, well, these are the same. And but there were many people I got into a row with, you know, sort of say they go, oh, you hippie, 60s music. But they couldn't see the correlation. And I could. And, I, and I, you know, and I still think that if you listen to Pushing Too Hard, for example, if you can't hear a kind of a, you know, punk in there, or you're going to miss me even more by the 34 elevators. Yes. If you can't hear a direct reference to punk there. And then, of course, through that side of thing, I discovered the Stooges, the MC5 and everything else. So my I had this kind of glam psychedelia punk thing that kind of rolled on. And I like to find I like to go to the various record stores. We all found them when we were growing up uh, that would stock other stuff and I'd go and I'd just buy a record and I wouldn't know I'd, I'd see the band or I'd see the cover I'd say to the guy is this good of course he'd see this little 16 year old kid with five pound in his pocket and go, oh yeah that's brilliant that one <laughs> you know so I'd buy it quite often I get home it'd be dreadful but then 30 years later I loved it um, yes. so I liked to discover and in those days it was more fun wasn't it without the internet you had to it, you felt it was yours that 12 inch piece of vinyl was yours to own so there we are well, that was my musical heritage i know it sounds all a bit you know rose tinted sunglasses but i do remember spending saturday afternoons going around the city to record shops and secondhand record shops just for you know killing five hours they didn't feel like killing five hours it felt really important but you knew you would come back because you had this limited budget with no credit card or a checkbook and yeah. you'd buy this one record that you would like regardless if it was yeah. <laughs> and you, you were gonna you, you were gonna get your money's worth because that Absolutely. a would cost you so much money and b it took you five hours of having got the bus to norwich so yeah then. so so of course in those days without the links of communication no i missed all the eric stuff i missed you know i missed every you know we we, we that there just wasn't that you know link really from city to city and unless you were really you know, there, there were people who did, who were hyped on it. I just wasn't one of those. I was a little bit too young, possibly. Um, but uh, no, I, yeah, 
Oh. Yes. Well, I was definitely not hype. I came from a village and we just go to Norwich. And frankly, you know, we had, you know, in the end, the farmer's boys, the Higsons and serious drinking. It wasn't a big music world. But I mean, all the you know bands came through, but it wasn't that kind of place where you went, my God, you had so many bands, you know, and then Cherry Red Records, you know, 20 years later, put out these compilations for, you know, Liverpool, five CDs, Manchester, you know, seven CDs, you know, Sheffield, you know. I mean, yeah. it just rubs it in, you know, just rub it in our face, really, don't we? You know, we just go, we just got, you know, the farmers' boys. They're not amazing, but they're fine. But yes, but then as the eighties progress, as you realise, every scene quickly turns sour, and it kind of, and punk really did sort of not hold it very well, did it? Because that kind of went pretty. I mean, it was a bit cheesy, not cheesy. It was just the fact that, you know, you had these kind of superstars suddenly come out and you had to look this way. And as you mentioned, polystyrene and various people said, no, punk doesn't have to be like that. And everyone said, no, yeah. that is, that's what punk is. No, punk became, punk became uh, the antithesis of what it set out to be, you know, uh, kids with mohawks and studied leather jackets on the King's Road charging people five pounds for a photo. And I kind of thought at that point, time to bow out. <laughs> and, um, and, and we did, you know. Well, um, it was it was that line in Widnell and I, wasn't it? You know, when he says, you know, they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, and you went, you know, the sixties is over, man. It was it was it seemed very quick, and also, you know, that philosophy that you were getting pummeled by, you know, either Johnny or Joe or one of the others. Like, my God, you you become the people that you hated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did change, but you know, it has to be said that I think you know the bands that took off from that, the Clash. Uh, you know, they had a brilliant out, you know, post all through punk and post punk, they, they were brilliant. Uh, the Damned, of course, have always been um, up there with, you know, for myself personally, you know, as, as, as sort of associates, friends and, and, and a band and what have you. So those bands, there have, there have been a handful of bands who've, um, I think, transcended the genre, if you like. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and we still have them today. Yes. Well, did you see the great film on the Nightingales and Robert Lloyd, that King Rocker that came out last, well, three weeks ago? No, um, I haven't. No, no. It will change your life. It's just brilliant. So uh, it's it features very a lot of Stuart Lee interviewing him and then lots of clips of the Nightingales. And uh, But there was a great scene in there because they support The Clash and they get basically kicked off the tour because they wouldn't wear the Clash t-shirts. And, and Rob Lloyd said, I was fast-tracked to disappointment very quickly. And that kind of saved him a lot of time being disappointed later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, I, I think um, to be a musician uh, for anything longer than five years, I think if you can't handle disappointment, you're going to have a very rough life. Yes, yes, this is true. So as, as the, you know, because as, as the... 70s progress, you know, 79, obviously Thatcher gets in, the 80s appears, and it's a kind of a very weird time. There was the post-punk period, and then, you know, we had the Falkland, you know, war, and then, you know, a huge amount of unemployment. So there was like, you know, job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes, which a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, you know, went, oh, yes, we did that. We got a thousand pound in our bank account, which was amazing. <laughs> yes, we just passed it around and we all got in. So that was quite handy. So that was why with a lot of indie bands, and then there was a lot of early you know like you know Dan Tracy and people like that suddenly appeared and a few years later you know there was creation records and then well can, can I just before I forget because as we all know Dan's not great at the moment um but um uh Dan Tracy put out our first record the Druids are here on Wham Records and it was an absolute joy down at the 100 Club 
two years ago, I think, two years ago, uh, to go on stage with the uh, TVPs, uh, Benefit for Dan, and to sing, um, I sang, I know where Sid Barrett is and smell the roses. And uh, it was, I loved it, you know, to pay Dan back. He was, a, he was a lovely, lovely man. And the TVPs, what a, what a band, you know. It's amazing how many people have never heard of them or discovered them. And as soon as you, when they first hear it, they go, well, what's it? But as soon as you listen to it and you get, you get in that headspace and you, those songs, the, the man was a genius. Yes. Now, there's not many people you can say that about. Dan Tracy was a genius. Yeah, well, it's interesting. He's a genius. Genius, he was. Yeah, well, well, I, I, you know, last week I interviewed a guy in Germany called Thomas, who went to a very, came over to the UK, you know, and suddenly appeared in, at a TVB gig, and there was Anna McGee and various other people, and he helped, you know, load the equipment into the, you know, place and all that, and then set up sort of doing tours around Germany for these bands. So he got to know Dan, because he said he put them on endless, he started selling the records in Germany, then started doing these. Sorry, just in my seat, carry on. <laughs> then he started doing these tours for both Dan and then creating records and other people for basically the next 10 years of his life until he needed to change but yeah there was there was people like him who who you know has spoke about Dan Tracy a lot and then there was another band from Sheffield called the um is it the Thousand Violins who kind of went down and stayed with Dan and were on the label and another band called the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters who also or on the Wham label. So, you know, I've, I've come across a lot of people who just, you know, have nothing but amazing stories about yeah. Dan and how much they love him and, and care yeah. about him. So it's great yeah. that uh, you've also got, you know, that same kind of narrative. Yeah, I've got, I've got one of his, uh, the album. In fact, we, we, we ripped off Dan's idea because uh, I don't know if you remember, I've forgotten which album it is, but he painted, designed and stuck collages on all the covers himself. Um, and when our first album came out, we hated the sleeve so much because we'd done this photo session and of course we we're around and gigging and then it was a kind of the spinal tap moment. Guys, here's the album cover. And we went, what the hell is that? We were so, so we said, if people send their sleeves back, we would, and we ended up doing about a thousand of them, but I got, the, I kind of ripped the idea off from Dan, but it, it taught me right because I, we ended up in a room for three days with crayons, paints, whatever we had, just doing a fat, we did them all. A thousand sleeves sent back to people with our drawings on them. So Excellent. there we are. If you plagiarism doesn't pay kids. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So when you, you know, when did you decide though to to go from being a fan and being, you know, keen to to actually being in the band forming a band? Because that's quite a leap, isn't it? We kind of go, oh yes, you formed a band. But yeah, no, most people don't well, go that far. Yeah, and but I, well, I put my toe in the water first. I didn't jump in the deep end. I put my toe in the water. Uh, so it was quite a smooth passage for me. Um, I basically, um, I, I got a job at the time when you're talking about, you know, I was not the archetypal musician on the dole. Um, I actually, um, I had my hand twisted a bit, you know, I was still living at home and I was told I could, you know, I, should, I was I politely put, I was told I should maybe consider getting a job. So I did, and I ended up working for the civil service, which was a godsend because it meant the civil service in those days. This may sound irrelevant, but uh, just to paint you a picture, it was like um, Brazil. It was like the film Brazil. It was irrelevant, uh, and I was working for the Registry of Friendly Societies. I ended up working for the agricultural department where we used to declassify coifu clearance societies. Now you can imagine what state of the world would be in today had I not de. And I, you are actually 
talking to the man who closed the last ever Koipu Clearance Society in Britain. We can do a separate two hour interview on that another day. It was an archetypal moment in British social history. Um, but what it meant was you had flexi time. So I could gig and do stuff and I could get in at 10 or I could get in straight from if I was DJing at seven and then and just sleep in the toilets for two hours and nobody would miss you. And in fact, the toilet system was head height and the door just happened to be the right length with the toilet roll holder on it. But I could put my feet on the toilet roll holder and lay flat out like that. So that was, there was a godsend. So I was getting money and we were, and we started, instead of going into the band, we, I started DJing. So, um, and we started going back to my roots. We started what became known as the psychedelic revival in London. Uh, that kind of sub sub subculture um, was that the mood, was that bands like Mood Six and yeah. the, the is it the Direct Hits and all those kind of bands? It was on one side of it, right? There was the, because our umbrella of psychedelia. I mean, I used to DJ with Chris, another DJ, and we take a deck each, and we go from Nirvana to Johnny Cash to Captain Beefheart to the Thirty Four Elevators to and then the bands. There was a lot, quite a few bands that came up. Jesus and the Mary Chain played their first London gig at Alice in Wonderland, my club, um, because Alan McGee, I knew Alan McGee, he puts on in the living room, the smallest venue in the world ever. In fact, I met Alan during lockdown, just at the end of last year, and we were talking about, if anyone wonders why it was called, it was a living room, um, and, and it, was, it was brilliant. So uh, Alan used to give us bands and what have you, So and I used to play Creation Records, the first Creation Records, he used to DJ. Jasmine. So the idea of psychedelia was very broad. There was another club, Called the Groovy Cellar, which play, which was all Mood Six. Uh, you know, every, you could go in there and it would be like a scene from Blow Up. But we kind of expanded it. So in the end, we had the Damned playing there, the Cult, Zodiac, Mind Walk. Uh, so it kind of expanded that way. Um, and our whole thing was just to, well, as I say, to me, nothing. Uh, when, I, when I DJed on the radio later in life, I had a saying: if you can't open your mind, don't open your mouth. In other words, um, you know, if you if you don't like music, if you don't like it, you know, oh, it's rubbish. I hate that. You know, I hate psychobilly. Well, no, you don't, because if, if I once had an argument with a guy, I said, oh, I hate psychobilly, uh, and I said, well, how can you? I said, do you know what? What the necromantics? Which side of psychobilly? The stingrays? What? You know, you cannot hate that whole genre and any event, because if you don't like it, somebody else will. And I always say that about music. It might not be you. So instead of saying what you hate, why not move along? say what you like so and people on social media this is kind of my mantra instead of slagging someone off why don't you just find an artist you love and say something nice about them so they get to read it that's that's what it's all about so get inclusivity get pile it all in there and just see what comes out so it was called psychedelic but we kind of put a mash into everything and then one night I was bet five pound by a mate of mine that I couldn't he said oh you just play other people's records you couldn't do it and he had a band called the Marble Staircase who were playing Ravensbourne Art College uh, September the 9th, 1982 or the 19th, I can't remember. And he said, I bet you can't um, form a band and you can't support us in two weeks. I said, all right, of course I can. And I did. And we blew him off stage. And that was how Doctor and the Medics formed. So, um, and I think our set probably at that for that first gig will reflect everything I've spoken about. We had Ron White Horses from the television show. I don't know if you remember that. Classic. You're a little bit too young. 
Uh, but it was a I theme tune. Remember, I can remember that one because the, right. the, the soundtrack is so gorgeous. And one day you on Spotify. Run and... white horses, let yeah, you know, yeah. But but a it's like it's a bit it's a bit like the flashing blade, isn't it? One day you just think, yeah. God, that song, I must listen to it. And you, the first twenty seconds it blows your eye. It's just brilliant, isn't it? Flashing blade. Yeah, just... absolutely. And we played these boots are made for walking. We opened the song. We were a trash band. We we basically our model at the time was the trash men. Um, and um, yeah, we, we uh, and, the, and um, the legendary Stardust Cowboy, that was what we wanted to be when we started. So our music, so we played these boots are made for walking. We had two of our songs, the Druids are here and the goats are trying to kill me. And the rest of it was just this anarchic um, blend of um, sort of musical chaos. It just, well, what's that? Let's put that in the set. What's that? Yeah, let's put that in. But that's, yeah, put it in. It'll sound like us anyway. And we did, and we did the first gig. And surprisingly, someone invited us to do another gig. So we did it and people just liked it. And that was it. That was it, that was it. I'm still, yeah. I must admit, there's been a lot spoken in the last five minutes. I'm still very excited. I was going to show you something because you mentioned Koi Poo and there was a East Anglia used to have the fairs and festivals called, you know, and this is the sun yeah. in the east. And there used to be a magazine or a paper called the Waveney Clarion. And there used to be a strip called the Koi Poo Control. And um, when you mentioned that, I just thought Koi Poo. I've never had anybody talk about Koi Poo on this show, but I was very impressed with that. <laughs> oh well, that's uh, yeah, that, that that stole the wind from my. That, there I am saying koi pu, uh, and you've got a bloody book of it there, brilliant. Koi that, but that, then, that, stopped, then... that stopped me in my tracks, didn't me? Oh no, what have you got? The koi pu clearance manual? No, I haven't. I've got the oh, C eighty the C eighty six and all that, which does feature an awful lot about the neo psychedelic scene that's been written by the one yeah. and only Neil Taylor, which is obviously, you know, it was a big, it was quite a movement, wasn't Neil it? Neil Taylor, pardon. Neil Taylor, that name rings a bell. So he did the cassette for the NME and he was the journalist, so... Um, he interviewed us, I think, once. I'm sure Neil Taylor interviewed us. He was, yeah, he was very much on that scene and I guess he would have done because this book's got so much detail, yeah, it's quite unbelievable. Yeah. But he, he definitely is in it. So he did the book, well, he did the cassette in 1986 and then he's gone on to put this book together and with another one coming out very soon, which will probably feature photographs of... Um, yeah, Dan, Dan Tracy, you know, he does come back quite a lot and I would imagine someone one day will try and do a, a film at least about Dan. So as the 80s progressed, it was quite interesting, this is one of my other theories, that, you know, 83 was a big moment because the Smiths appeared and suddenly indie pop was suddenly a thing for five years, wasn't it? There was like another door that opened. How did that world kind of effect you know because suddenly everything's very tribal isn't it as you mentioned and yeah. i can remember in the 70s it was very tribal with you know um, it was less tribes but they were christ they were tribal but then the 80s comes along and then i don't know if you've ever seen a book by a guy called sam neil but there's all these different groups of, of people you know from yeah shoegazing yeah, well we, we we kind of were the and antithesis of all that in a way because we saw it getting very serious we saw, we you know, I, I think the Smiths were serious. I think, you know, and then uh, New Romantics, sort of those kind of bands. I, you know, we, we thought this is just getting a bit too po-faced, a bit too artistic. And we didn't like it. And we wanted to do, <laughs> we wanted to do what we wanted to do, which was be um, irreverent uh, and to have fun. And that was, um, so, so we literally, purposefully ignored everything we just did what we wanted to do our influence was more likely to be from some 
obscure record that Steve Maguire bought from 19, you know, 74, Bert und Jantz, uh, you know, this uh, German rubbish, awful bubblegum record that nobody in there, but he put it on because we love bubblegum music. Uh, so we would, we, we'd take a bubblegum record and write a song from, we'd just rip it off basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, because nobody ever heard of it, you know, it, it, it would be that one. It'd be like Father Ted, where they're going in the Eurovision Song Contest yeah. and in the lift. They hear the song they've ripped off. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, but we, we, we kind of got away with that a few times early on. So we intentionally ignored it because and, and with the club as well, when, when we started the club, a lot of the clubs down at Billy's and everything else were kind of the new romantic. And so we thought, no, so we used to have jelly ceremonies and uh, banana sacrifices and, uh, um, and just, um, just anything to, to shake it up a bit. So we created our own bubble. And I think that's why when we kind of first appeared to the public at large, we maybe looked, you know, different because we weren't we didn't have a clue we did you know we pop our head up and when we do all the 80s shows now it's funny because people say oh you must have you know you must have met all these people back in the day we didn't meet any of them none of them would have been seen dead on a stage with doctor and the medics you know um we, we were kind of like the anti-fashion band of the time so we kind of yeah we just channeled our own bitch and everyone said Oh, have you seen what this, what, what the Smiths, have you seen what this band said? No, not interested, go away. Blah, 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 blah. You know, <laughs> we kind of just ploughed on really like that. So, so. so why was there then, this is something that I've been thinking about recently, why was there so many different subgroups sub within the 80s? Because the 70s, you know, you had prog, heavy metal, you know, and a few others and punk, obviously. But then the, the 80s comes along and, and it's like suddenly when you start looking at it, there are just so many subsections to this kind of decade. And it happens very quickly, you know, from like, yeah, like from anarcho-punk to goth to, you know, variations of goth to, you know, to in, indie to shoegazing to, you know, and it's just like, God, and, and this guy Sam Neill's put this book together, you know, from that day, from basically that decade and, and you just start looking thinking yeah there was a definite scene there was all these different scenes so do you do you have any idea of why there were quite so many different scenes uh, well, well yeah um, I, I think um, one thing that punk did do was you said about all the big 70s uh, movements well, one thing punk did do was let you know that you had this DIY you could do this yourself as Dan Tracy Proved, you know that but you could almost create your own label you didn't need like you know you look at where stiff records came from you look at where all these small record labels came from so that's one thing that it did do but I think that because again you didn't have the communication we have today so you had you know you had the Sheffield scene the Manchester scene you know the Liverpool scene and then you had the London scene the London scene the London you know you, you had all these because people within there so say for example Alice in Wonderland how did we start when we started DJing? How did we get people interested? You went on the streets with flyers because you couldn't afford an advert in any of the papers. You couldn't advertise it in any visual way. So the only way people found out about you was you would go to other clubs, hang outside to gigs and fly people. So those people would then come down and that was their club because they, you know, they were the first people there or that so-and-so. And people used to, uh, people were quite territorial about their club or their scene or their bands yeah. because that to them was, was that. So the people would come down to our club on a Monday night, bear in mind, you know, we were filling it up on a Monday night in, in London. Um, 
they would know all everything about that. But you ask them, say, oh, do you know there's some clubs in Sheffield? They go, well, 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 why? You know, and that's it. And you talk to someone about in Sheffield about what's happening down in London. And they go, yeah, oh, well, we got this up here. So there was no, there was very little, um, very little cross pollination, if you like, of the cultures. You you had that that was there, that was there, that was there, and that was there. And people held that tribe, and it became quite tribal because. And I think it was geographic. I think it was because of the uh, communications available. And yeah, yeah. And I think that they, all the bubbles did. And then the music papers would occasionally pick up on this bit here and these people here. So I can remember with us, for example, I can only really speak from experience. We saw a thing over Birmingham Psychedelic Club and they read about our club and we kind of got in touch and we kind of had a few Birmingham London things going on. And that was all very exciting. <laughs> We're in touch with Birmingham. People yes. from Birmingham, oh, coming down here. Oh, are you sure? You know, literally, but that's how sort of compartmentalized the whole thing was. So I think if you're looking for a reason for that, I think it was purely down to social conditions and technology at the time. Yes, well, it's always fascinating with, you know, the living room and Alan McGee and the fanzines and then the early sort of records he put out and then the way that sort of continued and continued throughout that decade and then obviously the, yeah. you know, the 90s. But it was just kind of, you know, the scenes were, as you yeah. said, it really was a living room. It was. Like... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I turned up, I said, well, where's this? <laughs> I thought it was the dressing room. <laughs> and yeah, if it, there is a photo of us that's uh, appeared and you can actually see the fireplace. Nice. You've got a bit of a stage in the corner and you can see the fireplace in this living room. So it, it was brilliant. Um, but I suppose now, if you look at it, um, that, that, that has, even though we've got the communication, um, I suppose that's happened again on the Internet because artists, you know, starting their own channels, starting their own, so, so it's becoming even more fragmented and fragmented and fragmented. Um, but people are discovering it now on the Internet. So the stuff, you know, you could never now know half of the sub sub subcultures that exist in your lifetime there's too many uh, but there's people but i love that i actually like it going back to what we said about um you know when you used to discover you know months of your life to find an album uh, that was special that was nice and people say oh it's different now it's you know you've lost that yeah but what you've lost you've gained something remarkable you've gained accessibility you know i mean i'm not of an age now where i want to spend three months looking for a band i want to find out about them now so you can hear a band you can you can see them live on, on on youtube you can hear them you can read about them and within 20 to 25 minutes you've got a fairly good background knowledge of that band and then it's up to you you can take that further um and i like that process I, it does mean of course that you know um artists struggle because there isn't income and when you've got you know 10 million bands uh you know <laughs> here there's not they don't get the grab you know the, the pull but creatively artistically and musically i like it i lose myself i work in my office here um and i will quite happily lose myself for eight hours working quite merrily and then i'll hear a bit of music and then i'll follow that stream and you know and if you like this band you might like oh great and, that, and you find a whole area of music you never knew existed it's and i like it yes well no I, I i do the same it's very it's a very good distraction of going you might like these <laughs> have a listen. distraction music a distraction sir <laughs> i gotta have to call it into your legs again it's just this man just called music a distraction yes a distraction <laughs> this man here <laughs> I know it's it's lovely you know like you have well you have one of those Proustian well you know not just going forward but you have that Proustian flashback don't you of like 
oh yeah, remember that, you know, the flashing blade or white horses, and then suddenly you've sort of gone into a 60s weird Absolutely world. Absolutely brilliant. I love it. I love you know. it. I have days. You know, I'll get up and I'll I'll, I'll hear like an MC5 track. Um, and I think, right, that's it. And I'll uh, it's an MC5 day. And I will just get an MC5 playlist and I'll either play, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but Spotify are getting terribly good with with their um, algorithms now, you know, and if you put in a playlist and, uh, and, and random bands, if you like this, you will like 90% of it. Damn you, Spotify, grrr. But, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> they have it, they have it, don't they? Yes, no, it's yeah. fascinating. So as the 80s was progressing, and we were obviously, you know, Thatcher's children were getting bigger, and we had the Blitz kids and Spandau Ballet, and everyone was kind of hitting the big time with gold. How did you then navigate that next you know part of the that fantastic decade when we had to tell Sid about buying shares and stuff like that um well we didn't we've never planned anything we just planned we planned the only thing we planned was I think the first rehearsal half the set list and the transport to the first gig that's all we've ever really planned everything else has just been a happy accident or on many occasions an unhappy accident we just rolled along um, unaware of what was going on politically. I mean that, you know, people talk to me about the 80s politically, not a clue, not a clue. I was, I was, I was just into this weird, just to see how far I could push. I was like a little kid, don't, you know, don't push the button, you know, don't, you know. <laughs> and, and we were just doing it and that was it. So when we got in our, we, you know, we got the medic mobile as we built, as we, right. So. At that time, the band, we had started to build, you know, we got a bit of known and we started to go around the country up to Newcastle, everywhere, Delaware. we even popped over to France uh, and we were starting to get a bit of traction. So we were, you know, at this point, I guess, you know, we'd go to Scunthorpe for 250 quid. Uh, we'd pay the van, we'd pay a couple of guys to help us and we'd all take, you know, 15, 20, 30 quid, which was brilliant. So, you know, and we that was it. Yeah. And yeah. we were more interested in, um, what we were doing than what was going on around us. So we, li I literally missed, I mean, I'm a Liverpool fan and I missed a lot of their glory years because we just didn't put our head up above the parapet very much. Um, so yeah, sorry, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people will, uh, right, I, I've met, right, I've intentionally, okay, been totally non-politicized as a as an artist as a as a, a music never i've never mentioned politics uh because i don't think a people want to hear that from us and b I, I i don't think i would trust myself to express an opinion you know i mean billy bragg you know and people who who put where their political colors on their shoulders you know fair play that's but people that's what you get people don't want that from doctor and the medics and i would hate to do it and the one reason for that is i went through that whole people talk to me about the politics of the 80s and i'll go what <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, mine, the miners what you know because we you know literally we were i mean you know i know what happened and i, I know that uh, and i mean one of my proudest moments was in the poll tax riots there was a picture of a blazing car in london and a guy stood on top wearing a doctor and the medic shirt that's about all i can tell you about the poll tax rights and the only reason i saw that clip was someone sent it to me because of the medics t-shirt so i was woefully <laughs> today so really sorry to disappoint you on that one but we were yeah we, we were in our we were in medics bubble 
Wow, that's very impressive, actually. That was good. But then 86 comes along. And this is when we started getting bands like We've Got a Fuzz Box and we're going to use it. And yeah. people were getting very dressed up and very groovy. And then you appear like this, like, bolt of a lightning, don't you? So everything, you know, you obviously, things have really shifted into top gear at this stage. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of bands, um, <clears throat> a lot of people thought that we were kind of this manufactured band that just appeared. You know, we've been going for four years. And we'd had an indie number one and of course you'll know about you know it's a shame now they, they, we we uh we trod over the line at the wrong time because if you remember you had you know the indie charts and that was we, we had a number one with happy but twisted in 85 and we kind of thought that was it and we were going to make an album and we were an indie band yeah, um right. and if you if you had a hit if you remember the term you'd sold out and you know when spirit in the sky came along of course loads of people go oh, you sold out your pop stars now you were no longer what we talked about earlier that tribalism they felt a lot of people felt really let down by us that we'd crossed that line and of course you take it to the 90s a few years later and you had all the indie bands you know oasis with alan mcgee and of course you were expected to chart so but we we at the time we got the brunt of oh you've sold out you know you're uh, yeah you're a pop band now um so yeah, that was that was an interesting transition because we'd um, we we didn't expect to have a hit. We did the first album. We didn't expect anything like that to happen. We just assumed this was the first album. We were already thinking the second album, the tour, American dates, and you know, again in bubble land. And literally, um, you know, I remember someone saying you're number forty in the charts, and I was like, what? what? <laughs> what's, the what's the chance well it's interesting you mentioned that because because i i'd sort of slightly forgot about this great a great angsty moment which was probably towards the late 90s no 80s when sonic youth signed to a major label and there would be months of angsty written essays about you know is this oh know, god yes do you remember that do you remember um the nme and um bauhaus pulling journalists up on stage and interviewing them in gigs about you know their you know that it became the whole there was that whole period where the media if, if they said something about a band it became intense letters and everybody and the motion i remember there was a whole thing about bauhaus getting a journalist who'd slagged them off on stage to, and part of the gig was them interviewing the journalist on stage it became that kind of uh <laughs> personal you know i, yeah, I remember all that and it, it's quite remarkable when you look back on it isn't it probably well, like it an, early, an early form of uh, trolling <laughs> well it was yeah it was quite it was quite well before that i was just reading this bit on nick kent sort of talking about his early years of working for the nme and someone said whatever you do two things don't don't say anything negative about elvis presley because his fans are weird and they'll stalk you and don't say anything bad about any bands that don arden manages and somebody had written an uh, an interview uh, a review of electric light orchestra which apparently was really positive apart from they said the drum solo went on too long and don and his hard hit his two of his kind of hard men turned up and literally like terrified the journalists and it was like never gonna <laughs> I be can so believe it. <laughs> i can believe it so that was don arden his kind of great kind of uh, idea yeah, you yeah. to irs records which was it was at miles copeland's label wasn't it yes it was yes um and um you know it's a double-edged sword that one because i right <clears throat> because i think right the reason spirit in the sky one reason that it was such a big hit that it got such uh traction early on when it was released was 
we signed to RS very much as an indie band, this quirky British band of lunatics, you know. Um, don't talk to them about the minor strike. They don't even know what a mine is, those people. Um, uh, but they know what the back of a transit van is. Um, and that was us. Um, and then IRS did this mega deal with MCA Records. Uh, and suddenly, to impress MCA, we'd been recording this album. I'd never met Miles Copeland. Um, and um, he suddenly turned up as we were mixing the album with MCA, sat there, the rest of the band buggered off next door to play pinball and left me sat there listening to the entire album semi-mixed to absolute silence looking at these people thinking well who are they and there's Miles Copeland and nobody said a word for 40 minutes and I thought what the bloody hell is going on here um and then at the end of it all every you know of course everyone's looking at Miles Copeland because he's Miles Copeland um I probably shouldn't say any more about him at this point anyway um they're looking at uh, Miles well I don't hear a hit uh, and it was like, uh, he looked at me and said, have you been an America boy? I said, uh, right, well, uh, two things, no. And if people over there call me boy, I don't want to go. Save your act for the stage. I'm not releasing this record until I hear a hit. And he stormed off out. And it was all staged. Yeah, no, I know. And I'm there. And then the band came in, what happened? <laughs> I said, well, they're not releasing the album. <laughs> whoa, 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 you know. So, um, we went home and, and of course, now you look back on it, it was all staged by Miles Copeland to show in front of MCA that, you know, what he could, you know, who he was, you know, a bit like Putin, you know, saber-rattling. Yes. And yeah, it was quite bizarre. Uh, so anyway, went in the next day and we were discussing stuff and I mentioned this bizarre dream I'd had about Spirit in the Sky. And we had been mecking around with Spirit in the Sky and Craig Leon just said, well, that's the one, that's your record. He said, you know, that's more Doctor and the Medics than a Doctor and the Medics record. And I went, nah. Uh, and we all went, nah. In fact, when we first recorded it and it was released, we didn't want to play it live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we, we didn't know how. We, 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 um, we, if we played it as per the record, the parts, if you took right, well, you would play the bass like that, you played it, you played it, it, it sounded like a cabaret band playing Spirit in the Sky. Um, and so I've forgotten who it was. I think it was me and I went to, and we, and we just got in there and said, look, well, let's just tear the song apart. It doesn't have to sound like the record. Why we, why we, none of our other songs sound like the records, right? Yes. <laughs> white horses didn't sound like white horses. We said, so why are we trying to sound like a record? Why don't we just play it as we would play a cover? Just because it's a single, doesn't mean we have to show any more reverence than we do to any other music. There's no sacred cows, even our own record. So we ripped it apart and we just played it live. So the live version has very little to do with the recorded version. And we kind of thought, yeah, that sounds us. That That's it. That works. So, um, yeah. And that was that, that came into being and we started playing it live. And then we got a phone call in South Wales that we were number 17, I think. Yeah, number. someone told me in the supermarket I was number 40. <laughs> And then we got a call saying we were number 17 when we we're down in South Wales doing a playing a college gig there. So that was that was and the weird thing about that tour was it had been booked months before. So we played the Stars and Stripes Club in Carlisle and which held about 300 people. And we were number one. 
and there were thousands <laughs> of people. There was literally 2,000 people. So it was a summer's night day, and they opened all the fire doors, <clears throat> they opened all the doors, all the windows, and people were just sat around the whole place listening to the gig outside. It was it was marvelous. It was it was lovely. Yeah. It was a moment. It was it was yeah. your sort of Woodstock moment, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, did you <laughs> the medics Woodstock moment? I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounded, you know, I, you know, we because we've been in lockdown for nearly a year, we're all sort of like we just, you know, that kind of image just makes you think, oh yes, yes, the good old yeah. days. Of, it was, it was, it was a fantastic, yeah, it was a little, little a beautiful little moment. moment. Everyone was like then with it. So, did yeah. you? I mean, how did you then sort of cope with that kind of the the kind of bloody hell? I'm now on top of the pops. I'm now hitting the top of the charts, and everything's it's gone a bit crazy because because no one really expects it to happen do they and it's like oh shit it's happened you know you might have dreamt it but everyone go yeah don't 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 give up your day job quite literally koi poos they need you and then you say oh my god actually i could possibly give up my day job well we well we we had been, to be honest we'd given up the jobs uh sometime before because we were doing that many gigs i think the year before spirit we did about almost 200 gigs and I think the year after Spirit, we did 300 and I forget the 330 gigs, which is which meant that we had that was including a tour of America where we had to play every night because we had no money. Um, and we literally had we had no time off at all. It was ridiculous. So we so we'd given up the job sometime before. In fact, I signed on for two weeks because I gave up my job. I think 84, late 84, early 85. We were doing a gig at Woolwich Polytechnic. I used to sign on for two weeks. I only signed on for two weeks. Um, <laughs> and the person who signed me on was Steve Maguire, our guitarist, who worked at the Dole office. And he just happened to sign me on. And I walked up to sign on. And there's a big poster with my face on advertising the gig down the road. And I walked up. And this is the, you can't make this up. Steve's The last person Steve signed on before lunch was me. Nice. So, I would go in, sign him, and then I'd say, right, see you around the pub. And we used to go around the pub and talk about the gig the night before. Uh, so, but I went and I said, Steve, I'm signing off. He said, oh, you don't have to. I said, Steve, there's a bloody great big poster uh, of my face on the Dole office saying I'm doing a gig down the road. If that's not a sign, he's, and he said, well, everyone from the office is coming. <laughs> and I said, that doesn't make it any better, mate. I'm signing off. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so I, I signed off. Um, and fortunately, when I left the civil service, uh, I cashed in my pension, which was like two grand, which in those days saw us through. So and literally, I can remember uh, heading off to a gig and I'd spent the last of my two grand on petrol in the van and hiring the van and whatever all that business. And we got to the gig and uh, we got cash. And I thought, oh, that's breakfast sorted. And that's literally it was that hand to mouth for so long. In fact, there's two times in my life when I've been penniless and in a band with no prospects. One was then and the other is now. <laughs> <laughs> the irony of it. Yeah, well, it was quite interesting you talk about the lack of money, but I remember talking to, there was two bands, there was an indie band and also Motorhead, Fast Eddie saying that once, you know, on several occasions, they would sort of sabotage their van, phone up the, you know, breakdown service and get them to tow them back to London because they just had no money. He said, you know, yeah. we, you wouldn't believe how little money. And then it was another band, like, I think it was the, the Wolfhounds from an indie band who went to Glasgow for a gig. And it was like, oh, it's been cancelled. It's like, <clears throat> no internet, no kind of 
form of communication, no phones either. So they went, oh, right, that's a bit unfortunate because we've got literally no money. So they had to keep on people's floors and busk a bit and then get some cash to get yeah. back to London. So, you yeah. know, those stories, like, you know, why didn't you find when we used to When we used to go to France on the ferry uh, or to Ireland, which was the big one, um, we used to we used to have to play in the lounge, Steve and I, guitar and singing, to pay for the, the, the crossing and everything else. Uh, it was so, and you get on the ferry and you know, uh, you, you, you'd have your entertainer's ticket. And I can remember the first time I went there and I went to the bar to buy a beer before Steve and I sang and they said, sorry, you can't have a beer, you're working. I said, no, I'm not, I'm just singing with the band. Yes, you're down, we, that, and they refused to serve me and Steve beer because we were the band. But the great thing was, I was and of course people coming on this was after spirit as well right because just because you had a number one doesn't suddenly mean someone comes the big bag of cash man hey you've had your number one here's your cash kids you need any more you just call me okay let me that you know no we were skint so you know and we'd be getting on the oh my god man and so we'd set up and there would be the sun newspaper two pound booze cruise all sat here you know get your cock out you know and and you just had a number one and this wasn't what i believed was going to happen <laughs> but you know and i didn't get my cock out not that time oh. Not, no. not not in the 80s anyway but um probably the 70s you could have done that but yeah so that's quite um yeah that's quite humbling isn't it actually that 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 whole idea oh the whole thing the whole thing in fact this kind of brings us to the next chapter um we and you asked how we handled it um well again we were in the bubble uh and um we st to be honest as a band we still are today in many ways we're very we get on and one thing we've always done from day one that's gone with every lineup uh has been we rip the piss out of each other mercilessly if anyone gets as tall you know above their station they're brought down and you know most of i mean the current lineup being some of us have been in the band for 20 years some of them have been in the band for 20 years and of course i'm the target for most of it which is great because it just reminds us all that we're just you know we're still the same ethos as we had so we used to pull each other down and if any of us would get above our station we'd just uh, tap them on the shoulder and just remind us all that we're all you know we're, we're medics and that was it <laughs> so we never got above our station we never really um and sadly this byproduct of that was we didn't really think of our career because as i said we never planned it so having a number one you think a band will go in the studio intensely you know right okay number one how are we going to follow this up really probably the most important single of our lives the follow-up single what we're going to do that's what most bands would do we were on tour and we got a phone call saying uh you're in on Tuesday to record the follow-up. We go, the, the follow-up, the follow follow-up, guys. <laughs> yeah, which follow-up? Well, haven't you got a wreck song? Well, we've got loads of songs. You know, you know most of our songs. No, they want a new song. A new song for the follow-up on Tuesday. New song needed for the follow-up on <laughs> Tuesday. New song. Don't panic, Mr. Mannering. So um, that night, we after the gig, we went to the hotel room and we wrote Burn. Um, and we rehearsed it during sound check. And we said to the guy, can you record this? Because we've got to send a cassette by post in the post to, to London so that the producer can hear it and get in the studio and start working on it before we get back. So, um, and also, you know, everyone had to hear this amazing record. So what happened was we did the sound check. Did you record it? Oh, sorry, no. No, it's all right. And you know, 
the manager. No, all right, lads, that's it, sound check. I went, oh, God. No, we're going to have to record it during the gig. And I didn't have any words. Uh, so we said that we have to do this. So we literally, without flying without a safety net, and funnily enough, a medics fan has sent me a bootleg. Uh, and it is a gig. Uh, and it it is the gig because it's the version of burn on there and i'm gonna i'm gonna stick it on the internet at some point with a story but it's much better than the single it's how we wanted it to sound because uh i'll, I'll tell you the single got a bit homogenized but it's great but you can hear me going hey 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 hello it's there's a pub <laughs> singer just trying to invent new words literally to drag me through this performance uh, so we recorded the gig, got the cassette, sent it to London. We turned up uh, to the studio. And of course, by now we were a hit band. So there were all these people in the studio and we're hearing this. Well, what's that? That's your record. He's like, what? And uh, I, I kind of oh, got a bad feeling about this. Um, and of course, what came out was number 22 it was rick parfit's record of the week god bless his soul a man with great musical taste um and you know it wasn't bad but it wasn't the record we wrote and now but and we haven't played it live for many many years because it is you know and live it doesn't work but one now i've heard this version uh, we started playing it live in my new show what i wrote during lockdown um so um which i'll tell you about in a minute but um that's yeah so we started playing it again now but we are now playing the version that we wrote and played for one night only back in 1986 so burn has been revived ladies and gentlemen this is great because i think i think this is how ozzy osbourne used to sort of record a lot of his material that he didn't have the lyrics he would just like be listening to do old, you know pony ioni and is it Ioni? Um, yes, and then just kind of be, you know, grumbling and mumbling and then sort of then fitting lyrics into the melody. Yeah. So I suppose, was this a similar process that you were doing? Only for that one song, yeah. Yeah, the rest of the time I'm, 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 I'm quite forensic with uh, lyrics. Um, Did you, well, at this stage, were you feeling the pressure though? Because obviously, no. because cause, cause playing 300 shows a year from, from talking to various well, people. Great. Yeah, but you think about it, you get up in the morning, you give them breakfast, it's like being a prisoner. You know, everything's done for you. You don't know, you know, you get to the gig, they feed you, they give you a drink. You've got a stage, you know, the stage like the back of your hand, you know, the set like the back of your hand, it's not work. It's brilliant. I could gig 360 days a year. I, I could, you know, it, it's it's just, you, 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 you know, I mean, these days, very rarely can we afford a driver or anyone, we do it all ourselves, so it's harder work. Yes. But if you're gigging, but if you're gigging lots, it's not hard work. It's not hard work. It's it's great. You're doing, I just, and, I, and the stage, the stage is your, you know, you feel great on the stage. You, you're good, and you know, and that's it. You got a dressing room, a hotel, so you've always got a clean bed to sleep in. You don't have to wash the sheets. I loved it. I loved. It. I could do it every day of the year. <laughs> well, I know that Mick Fleetwood, you know, in one of his interviews, said he just, you know, he he kind of looked at the camera. and said, "I love you, darling, but I just love going to that hotel. I love the towels. I love the little soap. I love the clean bed." Oh, the I little soap, the little soap. <laughs> I've got my own bag now. I've got my own string bag. I don't yes. know if you've got these string bags for soap, because staving on plastic, folks. Right here's your eco message of the day. I don't. I, I said to people, people buying you for Christmas the uh, the deodorant and the shower gel. Nice. So 
you got the packet with the plastic screen, you got the plastic in it, you got the plastic. So by the time you pulled all that apart, you've got enough to drown 10 whales with plastic. And then you've got the jet, and then that gets thrown away, that gets thrown away. So soap, bloody, it's great. Soap, it, and, and you put it in a string bag and you can put the string bag in, in a soap dish. But when you get to the hotel, you hang it out because you don't want it to go musky. And then you just put it under the shower and use it and it scrubs and it's everything else. So you can put all the little soaps from the hotels yes. in your string bag. You need never buy soap again. This it's is brilliant. true. But then, and of course, another... when you stay at a posh hotel, sorry, I know, I know you were hoping to talk about music. I know no, no, I... talk, but you know, you've got me on soap and string bags, so I've got to get this out of my system. You stay at a posh hotel occasionally, and they'll have a, like a really nice bar of soap, so that goes in the string bag along with all the cheaper ones, and then it all merges, and then eventually you get these. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, different smells, so, you know, so in your string bag. So everybody, get yourself a soap string bag, right? They're a real thing. It's not just invented by me putting soap in bags. They're a real thing, and you can save on plastics and save all the little soaps. There we are. Anyway, music. No, it's true. I just just <laughs> on that point though, where do you where do, okay? When, where do you stand on patchouli now? Hate it. Okay. Yeah. No, hate it. Hate oh. it. Uh, yeah. Hate it. Oh, uh, you know, the worst thing about when we did the Alice in Wonderland mystery trips and all that stuff was the smell of patchouli oil. And it's not the greatest fragrance, is it? Let's be honest. If it wasn't for um, it having some kind of kudos, I don't think people would choose it, would they? Really? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a patchouli fan. I'm not actually a very good hippie. I'm a rubbish hippie. I'm not actually, you know, I don't, I'm actually you know you my, my drive my life yeah yeah i'm nothing to, you know i'm the, again i'm the antithesis of hippiedom really so have um, you never yeah. been to stonehenge then yeah oh that that wasn't stonehenge hippie now come on come on come on stonehenge we played the stonehenge festival in 1983 or four i keep forgetting right I did, the, I did the virtual one last year and it was one of the most amazing nights ever um you know um there was a reggae band on before us we were still very much a trash band and in fact it's on the internet if you go on the internet you can see this performance of us and we're playing I think we're playing um a version of a cramped song and then we do boots are made for walking and then goats trying to kill me and the whole and then the whole it, it's just this chaos but we got there during the day um we set up our camp we were there for like three or four and we couldn't get we you know we just weren't in a fit state to drive for many days that's the truth um and we yeah and i just embraced the whole thing it was magical um a reggae band on for two hours before us now i always love going on after reggae because scar because scar gets everyone to you know it's very hard to follow a scar band because they're too good but a reggae band everyone's this starts happening to heads you know and when you look over the circle and you just see all the heads going and you think oh this is right this is good now because everyone would do will just mellow and yeah and be in a really happy mood but when you come on and you sort of rock it just works brilliantly so there was this reggae band on for two hours and then um we went on with this anarchic punk noise and it just worked it was brilliant it worked really well and i stayed up all night and then we i went to the stones at dawn and the police pulled the wires back and we went on there and i had this lovely moment where you had all these idiots climbing over the stone but i went to the hill stone and what have you and stood there and there were these two old hippies. Now they, they were hippies, but everyone else at Stonehenge, you've got to remember, it was kind of anarcho-punk convoy. It wasn't hippie, it was quite edgy. You know, it wasn't kind of love and peace, man. It was fairly edgy. And you, you know, you had some people there, you had to be, you know, it was, yeah. But 
these two hippies did appear unto me upon Sedet Stone. <laughs> and um, they had three glasses, which I still wonder about, three wine glasses and a bottle of red. Anyway, they poured it and they said, would you like some fruit of the earth? <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, <laughs> what's his name from Kelly's Heroes, who, you, you know, <laughs> take it in here, would you like? I said, I would. And I don't know what this wine was, but as the sun was coming up, tasted this wine, I saw it. And it was, whoa, I can see it now in my head, clear as day. And we, we, I think the three of us, everything around us went, I mean, this may have been psychologically influenced by other things during the weekend, of course, but the whole thing went doo -doo -doo -doo, silence. And all we could see was the sun and the wine and the three of us in this bright halo of light. And it was like, <laughs> and then, uh, well, yeah, it was wonderful. And then uh, they just looked at each other and went, hmm. And I went, hmm. So I was a hippie for about five minutes, right? That was a good five minutes, though. You packed a lot in. You were probably you were on some sort of sacred ley line as well, so it probably helped. You know, your, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the energy was really happening. Oh, there was some, there was something. There was something in my system, which is good. I know glorious moments. We love them. God, we reminisce about them at the moment, don't we? <laughs> um, so as as we trucked on, you then decide. Yeah. So after burn, which obviously was a bit of a you know, I remember David Bowie having a bit of a tricky period during the 80s because, you know, he did, you know, Never Let Me Down and Tonight and was never happy with those. And then actually, when he did his last tour, he, did, he, re, he went back and did some of those um, songs again and said, this is how I wish they sounded now or then. But, you know, the production, because there was an 80s production sound, wasn't there, in the mainstream charts, yeah. which is quite... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Treble, double, treble, treble, treble track vocals. Um, you know, you... you, you you, you never let a drummer in the studio, you had machines. And that was also then true of bass players. Um, you had machines um, and it was, yeah, very, and it was, a, you know, and I mean, listening back to it, there were some great records. People, I, I think Mature, for example, um, uh, some, some of the Ultravox stuff, I think utilized uh, the technology perfectly, you know, and, and, they, and, and they did it re really well. There was, there was some great stuff. But it, it didn't really suit our sound. So I suppose Spirit in the Sky was more us. And then suddenly the record company said, oh, no, this is how an 80s. And, and it was that A&R man, anally retentive stupidness that they said, well, I said, what are those strings in the middle? And he said, well, Spirit had strings, so this has got to have strings. You know, and, uh, and I kind of thought, oh, no. You know, this is this is, and of course, we had a contract that gave us no leverage. We weren't one of these artists like Peter Gabriel, who was powerful enough to have his own A and R controller. You know, we we were we were doctor and the medics. You know, and here, sign this, boys. Oh, well, don't like that record. It's tough. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah, we 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 kind of grinned and bared it, and then uh, that wasn't such a big hit. And then I suppose. We then rolled on. We did. Uh, we had to do a Christmas record, which I thoroughly enjoyed because, again, just for a laugh, I, I, I said, "Well, Roy Wood's Revenge," because Abba wrote ripped off Wizard with Waterloo. Anyone who doesn't know that is an idiot, right? So I said, "Let's." So if you watch, if you listen to Waterloo, it sounds very similar. To, I didn't want it to sound. Like, I wanted it to sound like Doctor and the Medics, and again, they made it sound like a bad Abba cover. But if you look at it with the video. It still makes me laugh. We've got Lemmy, Captain Sensible, uh, Katie Boyle, and it's just a mick take of the Eurovision Song Contest. And to me, and it was Roy Wood's revenge. That's why he comes bursting in with me on saxophone through the set, um, which was which was great fun. But uh, you know, we 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 were oblivious to the fact that we were slowly, you know, 
So and then we did uh, a couple more singles, more, which was a very good record, which we're playing again live now. Um, but by now, the vibrant thing about the music scene in the UK is if you go to countries like Italy and America and so on, so you'll see bands touring who you haven't heard of touring in the UK for maybe 20 years because they have, you know, they people still want to go and see them. But in the UK, certainly at the time before there was any kind of retro scene, you had your shelf life, that was it, you're gone. Now, the positive side of that was it kept the British music scene vibrant and exciting. Mm. So bands like us that were now, you know, you've, you've gone, you've, you've, that's it now. Unless we, uh, you know, I mean, our last single with RS, Drive You Said, was A-listed by Radio 1. They used to have the old A-list system. And um, they wouldn't even make a video. Even the record company had lost interest in us, you know. And there were two week There was us and Boy George. And Boy George went on to have a hit our record company refused to make a video and apparently we heard from an independent task force there weren't even enough records in the shops to get it in the top 100. So Steve and I went to our A&R man who will remain unnamed, nameless um, and uh, he and we went in to sort of say to him look we're A-listed we can do a video this weekend um, you know da, 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 da. we've got to get this is an opportunity we can't afford to lose. We've got the album coming out, the second album. We've got to do this. And as we walked in, there's this sweating man with hands shaking on this seven inch single. Funny. <laughs> Funny. Uh, sweating in the middle of the day, shaking <laughs> behind his desk. Funny. Anyway, I'm going to be a legend. I'm going to be a legend. And we said, what? He said, this is the next number one. I'm going to be a legend, two number ones. We said, well, what is it? And it was Mungo Jerry's remix of In the Summertime, which didn't do anything. I mean, Mungo Jerry's a lovely guy and a fine artist, but this was, his focus was this. Our record was actually A-listed, but he didn't want to know. So as we're trying to talk to him and all, we're saying, look, Steve, we've got this record. Da, 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 da. We need to do something if we do it. We think, you know, it can go, yeah, but in the summertime, this, this. So I just said to Steve, I said, come on, mate. Went around, I bought him a beer and I said, cheers, mate. It's been fun. And we had a beer and that was our last record with RS. Yeah. And that was, yeah, our last attempt at being, a. I, I suppose that was our last connection with mainstream charts and releases. Yes. God. And just briefly, because I love Lemmy, what was he like to um, be with? Well, I go back a long way with Lemmy because he, um, when we were, when we first played Dingwalls, we used to play Motorhead in our set, Motorhead by Motorhead. And, um, we played it once and uh, our roadie came up and said, bloke wants to meet you at the end of the bar. And I walked there and there he is with his white cowboy boots propping up the bar as he used to in Dingwalls. And uh, he gave me a bollocking. He said, uh, you play it too fast. I mean, how can you play Motorhead too fast? <laughs> but anyway, you play it too fast, stop dicking around. He said, people are paying to see you. You've got a good band there, but you're just fucking taking the piss. He said, Get your, buy me a drink. Anyway, I bought him a drink. And he, yeah, and he told me to basically stop messing around and take it seriously. Um, and when we played Reading Festival, we were number one, because he then came down the club. He used to come to Alice's regularly. And I got to know him quite well. Um, and then when we played Reading Festival, um, we came off stage and there he was at the bottom of the stairs. And I thought, what have I done wrong now? You know, <laughs> I'm going to get another Lemmy bollocking. Oh no, you know, back up the stairs. <laughs> Please. No. Anyway, I went down and he just put his hand down and shook my hand. He said, congratulations, you've cracked it. 
and I was like, well, I'll just end my career now. That's it. You know, ideally, I can killing Joker on after us, and they had this big bomb set up backstage, right, to go off. And I, I just thought, well, if I throw myself on that now and it blows up, that'll be it. That'll be the end. Lemmy's told me I'm good. Uh, I'm number one in the charts. My guts will be all in the sky for killing joke. That's perfect. Um, as it happened, though, <laughs> it was raining. <laughs> and I remember talking to the <laughs> bar and it was like one of those fireworks that didn't go off. <laughs> That's right. They got, I think they called it the Doomsday Firework or something. Oh, bad. Yeah, poor old so Look, as, 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 we, as, as you probably know more than anybody, but I've kind of gathered from doing these interviews that, you know, most bands have a five-year narrative, you know, the, the honeymoon of 12 months, you know, and with, the, with a lot of indie bands, you know, the John Peel session, then, no, the John Peel play, the John Peel session, the first album, then, you know, all the little gigs, then the first, yeah, that kind of world, then the second album, and then people are a bit fed up because they've got no money, they've all fallen out, and that's the end of it. But you did, you did last a bit longer. So then what happens in the 90s for you guys? Uh, well, um, a couple of guys left and we got in another couple of guys who were brilliant. Um, Gareth and Spud and a few other people, Simon Mulvey. Uh, you know, we, we had a bit of a revolving door thing going for drummers and bass players at that time. But myself, Steve and the two girls basically were pretty stable and we were just gigging all the time. We, 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 we were oblivious. Again, you know, we weren't planning anything, but we were oblivious to the fact that Clubs were getting smaller and attendances were going down. Um, and we weren't really releasing anything. We did do a dread, we were given a one record deal on the basis that we record Hi Ho Silver Lining for a record company. Uh, and we did it. And as you can imagine, it, you haven't heard of it. I, I've forgotten all about it. Uh, so, but uh, what it did do was it, the B side we wrote was Black and Blue, which, um, Everyone goes, oh, that's good. And then a mate of ours stuck that out on his indie label and it got some traction. So on the basis of that, Steve and I wrote Instant Heaven, the album, um, which was our only album, our last actual proper album, 1996. Um, and it's the only album that, it's my favorite album to date um, because it was, it was just me and Steve in the studio with the, you know, and obviously we had the, the guys and, Think Colette was traveling at that time so we you know we kind of whoever was around they're all on various tracks but it's I, I, I like it's a good album um, and we put it out and that was a, that was uh, kind of probably what you're talking about it happens because I said to Steve I said right we need to get some photos do some press he said nobody's interested you may as well say our asses have exploded so um, I said okay give us that we had fax machines in those days Doctor and the Medics had headed paper. Doctor and the Medics would like to announce our asses have exploded. We um, faxed it to the NME. We also sent them the album for review and they didn't review the album, but they did write and report that our asses had exploded. Um, and so that was the music press view at the time. That's how interested they were. Here's an album. What's this? Oh, their asses have exploded. Album. Well, print that then. That's better. That's going to be better than the album. Um, and Jonathan Ross at that time had his Radio 2 show and one of our albums was the free giveaway and he threw it in the bin rather than give it to anyone for free. So that's kind of the status we were at. So our, our, our photos at the time 
were just me and Steve bollock naked. Um, those were the press photos that we did for Instant Heaven. Um, in later years, people have, you know, have listened to it and said, well, why didn't that do anything? Well, you know, that's why. So I suppose after that, it, the band was dying of natural causes. And in 1998, we did six shows and um, I got an offer to go and tour the old Brannigan circuit, but it was to do covers. I didn't have a problem with doing covers. So I said to Steve, uh, I'm gonna do this, you know, just as one last hurrah. Um, around this time, by the way, we also did the Doctor and the Medics Unplugged tour, which, you know, it was, was interesting. We played uh -huh. the Guildford Folk Festival. Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we did, yeah, that, anyone who saw that, it will never be repeated, but it was, yeah, it was, it was fun. Um, but no, uh, uh, so Steve said to me, if you can take the rotting carcass of this band and make money with it, do so with, with my, you know, with all my best regards. So during this time to make money, I'd gone through a whole period where, going back a little bit, when 18 months after Spirit in the Sky was number one, I had no money. So I had to go and mix cement on a building site. Uh, for £20 a day in the pouring rain in November. Um, but that was, that started me off. I became a blacksmith. If you go to the Ritz Hotel, I don't, I think they've changed the canopy now, but the canopy around the Ritz for years, all the leaves I, I made. I did quite a lot of work with that model making on film and television. I became a joiner, a builder, because I suddenly realised, as I said, in that medics bubble, uh, I couldn't change a plug. It literally, you know, I was one of those people. I couldn't do anything. So I went through this whole kind of 10 year period alongside gigging where I learned all these skills and I loved it. I absolutely, it's a period of my life I would not change. I worked on Michael Palin's Globe, another story there. Mm. But, uh, you know, we did loads of really interesting things and I loved it. But I said to Steve, Look, I'm going to go do this one last tour. Um, and he said, not serious. So I got a new lineup together of which Johnny is still with me, uh, our bass player. I joined a little while later and we started doing these gigs and just to let you know, you know, we were playing for 600 pound a night. Now I had to put, I was paying for a PA, there were six people, I was paying hotels and fuel. So you can see, you know, that was kind of like the last chance saloon. However, um, at the end of it, I was just about to say to the guys, well, thank you guys. It's been great. You know, that's it now. I'm off to oblivion to go and, do whatever model making or anything and Johnny just turned around and said right what's next boss and I went and literally had he not said that I would have said that's it and I was like stop me in my tracks and I thought I looked at him in the eyes and his enthusiasm and his drive I, I kind of went leave it with me and I just changed my mind instantly so that one moment um and then we carried on and we did some dreadful gigs you know as you can imagine it was fairly fallow period you know we did working men's clubs we did, uh, you know, awful gigs, but slowly and surely, <coughs> we started to get a reputation as a covers band. Um, and it was very much us, still us, still, still playing the songs the way we wanted to. But I remember then we started to play festivals and then we started to, and then we got onto the 80s thing. And it, as I say, the bomber was coming out of the dive. Um, and then we did the Bearded Theory Festival. And someone reviewed it and said, Doctor and the Medics have turned into a wedding band. And I was like, Christ, we have. Uh, and I was going to, and, and the band then turned around and said, you've got to start playing your stuff. And I said, people don't want to hear it. I was, you know, I was, I was, I was, you know, I was broken a bit, if you like. I said, people don't want to hear it. He said, yes, they do. I said, all right, we'll do the Mole Catcher's Boot, which is one of my favourite live medic songs. 
So we'll see how it goes. But if he dies of death, I said, you know, that's it. So um, yeah, we did it and good. And then we did another one, good. And then we started doing more, good. So, you know, I think the next, the last time we played the Bearded Deer Festival, by the way, Richie, give us a call, mate. I need some gigs. Wonderful <laughs> festival, as are all the ones we played. I think we played three covers and then our stuff. So we've kind of gone full circle and now we're recording the album. It's funny, we spent the first hour talking about the first 10 minutes of the band and now, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and then we're recording the album, uh, which I'm hoping to finish before, you know, once lockdown eases a bit, I'm going to get down to the studio in Swansea with Dan and we're going to finish it, but I'm going to be posting, uh, we've got a couple of tracks that we recorded live um, that we're going to be posting soon to give people a flavour. And yeah, we've got our first album coming out since 1996. Um, and yeah, and we're entering another chapter of the unplanned career of Doctor and the Medics. The another journey, happy accident. The journey begins, um, continues. But then do you, do you sort of then feel, because I mean, with a lot of bands, you know, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, I remember, you know, the guys, this guy from the Primitives who were from Commentary, yeah, yeah, so yeah. the Mighty Lemon, Lemon Drops, it was, a, they had the same experience where they sort of brought out an album and it was a bit like, not even the, it wasn't just the music press, it was like even their own fans weren't interested. It was like, do you want the fourth or fifth Primitives? Do you know what? Do you know what? I'm not expecting anything. Um, we did a version, a cover version of uh, You Spin Me Round for the band uh, a little while ago and we put it out on vinyl. All I did was I pressed 300 vinyl and we made a video. The reason for doing it was I realised that a lot of the guys in the band who had been with me for like 15 years, they'd never held a piece of vinyl with their name in it. So the reason I did that record was for the band. The reason we're doing this is for the few people that listen to it. And because, hey, at the end of the day, I'm an artist and I've loved writing it. It's really funny because when I started writing the words, what am I going to do? I didn't want to be the old guy feeling bitter and twisted about everything. I didn't want to try and be you know get jiggy with the kids because I wouldn't stand a chance so I did I kind of had to reanalyze what I did and I wrote about fantasy so I got this whole the thing I'm not going to tell anyone the story but the whole thing is a fantasy and a story and it's a very dark story but the songs sound very light and I like that so I've enjoyed writing it we are playing the songs live which I think is the most important thing because we're kind of re-identifying ourselves now as not just a band that play old medic songs but a band playing new medic songs so we're entering a, another kind of age, which is good. So, yeah, you're right. I don't expect anyone to, you know, um, I, I doubt, you know, I mean, I manufacture CDs, so I'm probably going to put it out on CD, <coughs> but we'll sell them at gigs. Yes. And, you know, and that's it. But I, I, I want it to, and, we're, I'm, and I'm going to do vinyl because I think the guys deserve to have their work on vinyl. I think that's most important. So we will do a limited edition in vinyl and we do CDs, but the main thing is so that we can play that stuff live. So next time we play the Bearded Festival, whoever called us a wedding band, mate, right, right, you see us again and you hear us, I want you to retract, mate. <laughs> I know who you are, I know who you are. Right, uh, no, yeah, but that's, that's, you know, it's nice to have new material that, can, that we can use to define ourselves again. So it's been a, it's been a strange old journey and one that I don't think many people you go ask yourself why with two kids i got you know at the time i got with two at the time you as i said penniless and in a band why why would anyone in their right mind carry on i don't know maybe when johnny said what's next that kept me going you get called a wedding band you think oh yeah okay that's not that's not what i signed up for and then the band again you know the, i i think the reason i'm still here is because of my band 
and I love them. They are you know, like the current lineup, um, are something special to me. Yes, well, absolutely. You're, yes, I, I, you know, I mentioned that the Nightingales and Robert Lloyd, and I mean, his band is quite a new band, and what he's excited about is the new album or the next album and the next yeah. tour, and yeah. that's the only thing. You know, he plays, you know, the early stuff because people want it, but he doesn't really want to say that's just what we are. We are more than that, and we still yeah. want to create something. But it's interesting because that thing about... I mean, I realise the passing of time has, has changes so many people, doesn't it? Because, you know, we take everything for granted and then we, the fan, think we need to also get on with life and you, the artist, is kind of having to go through your stuff. But then, you know, 20 years later, things change again and we, we evaluate stuff that's happened and suddenly you say, actually, this is really good and now they're playing live. So I kind of think that there will be much more interest in the band and the new material and people thinking, I'm not really worried about it my preconceived ideas that I've had. Yeah. I'm just more interested yeah, well, in what's what they're doing now. Yeah. Well it's gonna be yeah it, it's interesting. I, I I think Lenny said one of the best career moves you can make is to not die. If you stick around for long enough something <laughs> will happen. And I'm 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 trying to follow that. You know, I'm trying to keep alive and just keep going. And if you keep playing and playing and playing something, you know, something good might happen. But you know, it doesn't have to happen. Or you know I can't wait to get on the stage. As I said, <clears throat> another thing that I've done, a lot of the stories I've told you now, actually, um, sort of more kind of uh, different, sort of more, um, should we say, gritty versions of them, appear um, in a show I've written called The Doctor Will See You Now, dash Life as a One-Hit Wonder. Because I kind of thought early on in lockdown, before bands come on, you know, we're going to have gigs where you can have maybe two people and, you know, venues are going to open, like comedy venues are going to open. So I said, let's, because I did, I did a little bit of a time as a stand-up comic, okay? Um, not going to go into that now. Uh, but um, it was, it was all right. I did a good few, you know, good. But uh, it's, it's, I tell you what, comics get my respect because when you're a singer, okay, I can be funny on stage, but I've got a song to hide behind, you know, when you've got nothing, yes. you're, you're out there. It, it's a, so I've kind of gone a little bit back to that. Um, and I've and the show starts with the Druids are here and ends with Terrified. And I say that was our first single and our current single, which is coming out from the album. And I say this is about everything. And we play all the singles, and this is everything that's happened in between. And we play all our records from kind of all virtually in chronological order. Um, and it's just and it's me kind of talking about similar to what I've done today, but it's a funny show. Uh, and it's good. So and that's been booked into proper, proper theatres. Like the Guild Hall at Portsmouth and the Fairfield Halls at Croydon. Um, so I'm going into theatres, darling. I'm going into theatres, marvellous. So it's another, that's another little episode which um, I'm really excited about. Yes. Well, I was just going to say a few years ago, probably decades now, but I saw Hazel, Hazel O'Connor doing one of her shows, which was one of these ones, and I've done an interview with her, where she basically gets her sort of life story and uses the songs to piece together this narrative for a lovely evening with a harp and her. Yeah. And But she said that she'd given up the music industry because she had the big hit, made no money, big albums, made no money, had nothing. And then sort of one day, I think it was in um, Edinburgh Festival, saw someone doing that one person show, I think a one woman show, and then yeah. quickly getting the suitcase and selling stuff. And Hazel O'Connor was like, I can't do that. And she said, you can. And basically, this is this is kind of what you're going to, you know, there is no plan B, by the way, this is it really. And she yeah. went, okay, I might develop my show on, you know, Breaking Glass and the, her story and the yeah. narrative. So it sounds a little bit, and I think as a fan, it's very hard 
warming and you know without getting too well, yeah. into the lassie story and starting to cry but actually when you hear the person's <laughs> story and the hits and yeah. what happened to them and you you end up the evening you're definitely buying some merchandise because you just feel like you've you've well, yeah, the I, artist yeah and i think hazel i mean she's lovely yeah hazel actually i do you know again someone i never met at, at the time but due to all the kind of the uh the the, the 80s rewind shows and you know the forever young festivals uh, you know she, she's fantastic fantastic singer fantastic performer and i'm i for one i'm extremely glad she's she's come back but again she's a performer she's 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 in you know she can hold the stage on her own you know she, she's she's brilliant um but no yeah it's very much that kind of show it's a bit of a stopgap i mean i said i've never planned anything but if i had to uh say how i'd like it to go is I'd like it to develop, if it gets a bit of traction with just the two of us, myself and a guitarist, um, you know, and we have backing tracks which are being produced by the band. So we kind of do that. I'd like it, if it gets some traction, I would like to it to carry on to the point where maybe I'm able to do that show with a full band on stage. So, um, but we'll, we'll see, but we'll see. But I'm really excited about the current format and putting that out there as well. And of course, we've got tracks from the album as well so so we build through everything we don't play waterloo unfortunately anyone so um anybody um who's you know looking forward to coming and hearing me perform waterloo i'm awfully sorry you're going to be bitterly disappointed but apart from that we we put a pretty good cross section <laughs> of, of the stuff um and i should mention that the druids are here our first ever record was a hit it was number four in the german mod charts so we're keeping it quiet that we're playing that because we're just worried that theatres might get invaded by German mods if we stick that one out there. Yes, so. it could it could just kick yeah. off, couldn't it? Did you? Yeah. I was just going to say, God, my mind's gone blank. Actually, Jesus Christ, that's not good, is it? <laughs> I was going to say you're talking to the the master of blank minds here. The the master of squirrel. Blank yeah no that's what i was going to, i was going to i was going to just say because lemmy i always keep going about lemmy but he you know for many decades you know couldn't get arrested in the uk completely broke he said the german market kept him going and, and playing europe did you find you you know the audience abroad was also kind of critical for you or did that not sort of come into the equation the french haters <clears throat> um because uh, we did the transmusical festival and they liked us um but then following that, Zig Zig Sputnik came along and they kind of put us in that bracket of a novel. They saw Zig Zig Sputnik and us as novelty bands, which is unfair on both bands, by the way, because, um, you know, Zig Zig Sputnik were, were uh, you know, I, I, um, I, I, you know, they were great. I, Martin's still going brilliant, you know, but to, to put us both down as novelty bands because they like their, you know, the French are very Gene Vincent, Rock and roll has to be in blue denim, uh, and that's it. And anything that deviates off that, they you know they didn't like. So the the, the French never took off. Germany, um, it's only now actually I do shows in Germany, literally, um, because <clears throat> we were due to go to Germany, but we had the hit, and they booked us into arenas virtually. You know, they I, I don't know what people just probably grabbing money. And on the way to Germany, Germany through Scandinavia, which we were playing, we got the news that literally the German tour had been cancelled because the venues had undersold. If they'd put us into clubs, we might have gone into clubs. People might have got to see us. We might have, you know, built up a following and done well in Germany. But people just thought, number one, put them into stadiums. So Germany was dead in the water before we got there. Uh, our saving grace is Italy, where they still like us. But the problem is, 
massive problem. That, I come off stage in Italy and they go, you haven't played it? I say, haven't played what? Waterloo. I go, what? <laughs> yeah, people want to hear Waterloo. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> they love Waterloo. So I love the country. I love the food. I love the culture. I love touring there. And do you know what? I sing Waterloo through gritted teeth. <laughs> but, you know, hey, I put it out. It's my fault. So shoot me. But uh, yeah, and um, yeah, but, you know, slowly, I mean, before 2020 was going to be our busiest year. Um, this was the year that we, we were going to Belgium, uh, Germany, Italy. We, we had an amazing year. This was the year of the dive. This was the year where finally, you know, I could think, right, okay, my bank manager's going to start talking to me again. Yes. Um, and this was, so it was great. So to lose all that, like within the space of a week was quite, was quite tough. But um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to go out there again. Excellent. So just, I mean, so when is the album coming out? Or when, when are you hoping to have the album coming out? Uh, the original release date was 2018. I think we've missed that. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, well, well it's, it's 21, 26 now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah, we kind of missed that. Uh, our next deadline, we, every year we say we're going to release it. But I have said, look, if we don't get this out by the end of lockdown, we need shooting. So I've got an opportunity now. I have finished all the lyrics, which is great because there's a few songs where bits and bobs so the lyrics are ready. I'm ready to go and do my bit. And then we just got, I, I think it will come together quite quickly now once we're, once we're allowed to, because Dan, our guitarist, has got a studio down in Swansea. And uh, for me, that's like, you know, 50 minutes. So I, I send him, the, he, he sends me the track. I do a rough guide vocal. I send him the guide vocal. He's all set up. He goes down. He says, right, that bit's wrong, that bit's wrong, that bit's wrong, and that bit's wrong. And I go, which bit's right? He goes, none of it. So that bit, do that. And he tells me how to sing my songs. Uh, so he's, no, but he's great like that. Um, and as a singer, to be honest, it's really important to have someone you trust because in the past, you know, when you're in the booth with your headphones on and you sing, no, that's not right. No, can you try do this, do that? And you're in there for an hour, two hours, you've lost, you've lost what it was that you were trying to do. <clears throat> No, try this, try it. And they can't put it across. Dan, he, he knows me, he knows how I sing, he knows what my voice is or isn't capable of. Um, and he will just say to me, right, no, you need to do da 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 da, da. And within five minutes, we've put in the where I need to go and I've done it. And it's brilliant. And, that, and I love working that way. So I think this album will come together quite quickly once I'm down there. So uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, it's called The Optimal Mystic. And um, yeah, hopefully it will be out, but uh, I'll let you, I'll certainly let you know, but um, yes, you know, yeah, it'll be, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send it to you to review along yeah. and I'll fax, I'll, fa I'll tell you what, fax I'll send you the album to review <laughs> and I'll send you a fax about my private parts. And That's it's good. up to you whether you review the album or write about my private parts. How about that for a deal? <laughs> I think, I think, with a, I think, yes, it's a, it sounds lovely. lovely. Now, look, what would you, interestingly enough, because you've got this amazing story, I mean, what would you, if you could have said something to your 18-year-old self, just starting out with all the decades of experience you've had, if you could have just whispered a few things in their ear, what would you do? What would you have said? I would have said... Don't trust the stitching on crushed velvet trousers after you've worn and sweated in them for four weeks on stage. That's a good point. 
my uh, undercarriage was probably seen by more people in the 80s than PJ Proby's knees. Uh, <laughs> because my pants would regularly just burst open because we used to gig so much, you know, and you'd have the whole thing of washing your stuff in the sink in the hotel, occasionally a laundrette, but generally it just got hung up and you wore, you know, it was, it was not nice. And of course the stitching rod. So there we are. That's the, apart from that, I think I've got everything just about perfect actually. Perfect, absolutely. Yeah, just, I think everything else I've done has been Seamless. just a, almost perfect. Yeah, just the crushed velvet trousers. Apart from that, it's just, it, just on the touring front there, I did speak to somebody who had been touring for years you know, doing the whole world thing, and said he'd, he'd realised he lost it when he was talking to a mirror, thinking it was somebody he was having a conversation with, and went, I have no idea where I am, and I've just been talking to a mirror, and then realised he had to get his brain together. So you, you know, because just going back, you were saying, you know, you just love touring. Did you not have any of those experiences of going? I've had lots of those experiences, but never touring. <laughs> What you're I mean, you know, you, you know, yeah, you, you, you can tour, you can tour, and you can tour. And I think that um, the one thing you learn as you get older, touring is especially with your voice. If you're singing, um, that'll be the first thing that goes. If you're um, if you're not sleeping or together or, or sorting stuff out, so you actually do get more professional. I think you know because when we were younger, we would you know states we used to go on stage and get away with it because, you know, A, the audience were in the same state, but B, that was, it was kind of a speed-fueled adrenaline, you know, if you see us at that time, very fast band, you know, I mean, we play, say we play No One Loves You When You've Got No Shoes now, it's at the, it's at a groove. You know, it was like, it was like thrash metal. Um, and so I think we got away with it at the time, but no, I'd, uh, I think you, uh, I, I, yeah, I just think you've got to be sensible and look after yourself, look after your body. I mean, you know, during lockdown, while I've not had time to <clears throat> go on stage, is a great workout for an hour with us because we do, you know, put some effort into it. So, uh, you know, I've been cycling, I've been swimming as soon as the pool's open again, you know, keep swimming, keep your body fit, keep your mind fit. Yeah, because you want to do this job. You know, what you don't want to do, I've seen, oh, I can't name the band because it was too sad and I don't want their legacy to be spoiled, but I, I was so excited to go and see a 60s band who were very, you know, seminal, yeah. and they were playing at Dingwalls, and God, the guys were out of shape, leaning on, <sighs> fag, couldn't sing, and I just thought, right, I'm not going to do, I am not going to do that, you know, I'm not going to, I did once say I wouldn't be doing this at 40, and journalists, some journalists picked that up, because that quote is out there, and I said, well, I didn't, I took a year off. <laughs> uh, I, I started again at 41 but um no I just decided if you're gonna do it you've got to be physically uh, able to at least sing properly and put yourself across so uh yeah uh keeping yourself gig fit I know this is true and actually talking of Alan McGee he's been walking every day since lockdown he looks in amazing shape yeah, well, you know? well yeah I met him in lockdown we had a great chat um it was lovely to see him again and we said as soon as because he lives he lives I'm in Brecon he's in Y so we you know we're, we're, we're quite close so I said we'll uh because uh, yeah we we started kind of you know the living room and my club started at the same time and you know we, we yeah we and it was through him we we, we got <laughs> just a quick story he, we got Jesus and the Mary chain their first bit of kind of just 
auto-destruct press, if you like, because they turned up to play our club in London, absolutely smashed. And they were kind of in the end, they were kicking guitars around the floor. It was just a noise. So me and a couple of people running the club went and literally carried them off stage. Uh, and anyway, Alan was there and of course he loved it. The next week in the music papers, you know, it was all over the place. He got them so much press that they were thrown off stage because they were too less, that and the other. So of course, something, oh, brilliant. And you know, that, that for a while, Jesus and Mary Chain had that destructive thing going, didn't they? Where they'd smash yes. it. You never knew what was going to happen, which is kind of exciting and rock and roll. But they got their first bit of press with that from us. So, uh, yeah. It's <laughs> amazing, isn't it? Yes. Did you did you ever sort of just briefly, did you ever get into that kind of squat scene that happened in London with people? You know, because there was a sort of a, the, the old ambulance <clears throat> station and all that. Or were you just on a different trip by then in the 80s? Um, no, no, I got into it um, because band members were living in them. And um, I, I, I got into the rave scene for a while. I still love hard house and acid music. I, I love rave music. I, I still, in fact, when I'm working, gone 10 o'clock at night, if I'm still working here, my brain's going, you know, all over the place. I put on dance music and I find that dance music is brilliant to work to it. Folks, you, your brain, I don't know, you suddenly go, you, 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 start, you start working in that rhythm. So yeah, I... I I kind of as an attendee, but not as a performer. Yes, interesting. Well, look, this has been amazing. Look, thank you ever so much. And when I put this out, I can send you a link and then you can put it on your social media platform. Send site. us a link, we'll stick it on. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. face twit, booker, box, yes, nang, we'll nick, knack, nong. We'll do all of those for you. All yeah, that platform business. Yeah, but yeah, no, of course, yeah. No, of course, and uh, yeah, we've got, we've got a few pages, so we'll make sure it gets out there. Uh, and they are, well, thank you for, yeah, what a thoroughly pleasant way to spend uh, an hour and a half talking about myself. There you go. This is good. Well, look, I'm really, I'm really excited about these shows, by the way. I do love these kind of the way when people start to reimagine what a live show should or could be like. And so, yes, I've been, I've been very impressed with some of these. Well, you know, if you see us playing in any format, just give us a shout and come along. I will, definitely. Look, take care. And yeah, I'll keep in touch. OK, thanks. There. Yeah. Bye-bye. No, absolutely, absolutely. And bye, everybody. Uh, keep following this man. He's, uh, yes, a proper journalist. Oh, there you go. Take care, Luke. Take hey. care. Bye now. Bye. 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 I, I can't even, I, can't, I won't even try. I won't even try. <laughs> and that, <clears throat> dear listener, is the end of the interview. Well done if you got to, the, um, to this point. You deserve a medal. But, um, yes, a massive thank you to Clive for giving me the time for that. Um, um, yes, Doctor and the Medics, you can find out more on various social media sites. I'm sure if you just Google Doctor and the Medics, they have a website, hopefully live dates, album, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure he just been talking about it. But if you want to contact me, I'm David Eastall, the C86 show. Just go to, um, just do C86, um, go to, what is it? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Keep it positive, frankly, Mr. Shankly. It's been a long year. And also, all these interviews have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, C86 Show, just Google. There you go. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.